Hello and welcome to the Neshama Project podcast, where we explore spiritual tools for human thriving. I'm Rabbi Ben Newman. This week we have a very special episode. We have a special guest joining us, Professor Daniel Matt, who is one of the great scholars of Jewish mysticism of our time. He did a translation, the Pritzker edition of the Zohar, the famous 13th century work, which is arguably the central text of Jewish mysticism. Today, we're continuing our exploration of the idea of the Or Haganuz, the hidden light, in honor of this, the Hebrew month of Kislev, which is the month where Hanukkah happens. It's also the month where it is the darkest time of the year, and we're encouraged to cultivate an inner light during this time, a inner hidden light, perhaps. Uh, so last week on the podcast, you can go back and listen to it, we went through a series of texts uh, from a text sheet that was prepared by Professor Matt, uh, all about this idea of the hidden light, or Haganuz, from the Torah, the um, Hebrew Bible, through to the rabbinic writings, the Gemara, Talmud, uh, and then mystical writings, the Zohar, and another work called the Ketim Paz, and then another work called uh, Pardes Rimonim from Moshe Cordovero. And I went through those texts last week and then spoke briefly about them. This week, I will be talking to Professor Matt about these texts from the text sheet on Orhaga News. If you're interested in accessing this text sheet, the text sheet can be found in the description of this podcast. And, or you can listen to last week's podcast where I read through the texts. Uh, Professor Matt will be sort of recapping the texts this week. Let's begin. Welcome, Professor Daniel Matt, to the podcast. It's so great to have you here. I'd like to begin by asking you if you could tell us a little bit about what brought you to study the Zohar. Uh, it goes back to my father. Uh, he, he was a rabbi. I was a rabbi's son and learned from him, I guess, a little bit about everything except Zohar, Bible and, and Talmud and commentaries like Rashi's commentary on the Torah. And my dad was very spiritual rabbi, even though he, he didn't teach me anything about Kabbalah directly or even Hasidism much at all. But I felt a very genuine uh, ruchaniyut, genuine spirituality in him. And I think that led me to search for things in Judaism that were more spiritual and mystical. And of course, the Zohar is always uh, presented as that, the masterpiece of, the, of Kabbalah. So I was intrigued by it. I, I think I first opened a Zohar when I was maybe... Uh, 17 or 18 or no, 18 or so. But I started studying it for, for the first time in my junior year abroad in, in Jerusalem in mm-hmm. 1970. And uh, talk, I took two courses in Zohar, 
at the Hebrew University. One was beginning Zohar and one was advanced Zohar. And because I realized I only had one year, so I took everything I could, and I was totally lost in advanced Zohar. But that didn't really matter because I was also lost in beginning Zohar <laughs> because Zohar is just so, so unusual. But that, that year, I really immersed myself in it, and that was my first uh, deep exposure. And then uh, I was asked to do an anthology of the Zohar, and I picked out about 2% of what I thought were the best passages in the Zohar. And that was published in 1984. And I taught Zohar over the years, you know, before and after that. But then finally in the mid-1990s, I was approached uh, by a family, the Pritzker family in Chicago, who wanted to commission me to translate the Zohar. And that uh, eventually actually began and actually was completed. And that was a great adventure took about 18 years to translate the Zohar and the Torah. So uh, I completed that project about six years ago. And now I'm teaching Zohar online. And what we're doing here is discussing uh, this theme that becomes so beautiful and poetic, even before the Zohar, but also in the Zohar. Yeah, it is a, a beautiful theme. Uh, so the theme is for the month of Kislev, um, which mm. is uh, the month where we sort of have a hidden light that we uh, discover, which is, and the theme is Orhaga News, the hidden light. Uh, and the reason that we taught that we chose it is because, you know, that it really is the darkest time of the year um, in Kislev. And then Hanukkah is a time when we sort of kindle an inner light to bring light to this dark time of year. So I wanted to start by framing our exploration of the texts. You know, you've provided this wonderful text sheet that goes through different Jewish periods of history all the way from the Torah to uh, Jewish mysticism and, and the Zohar and Pardis Ramonim. But I had a question, which is, you know, there's an academic way of reading these texts, but there's also a spiritual way of reading these texts. And I was wondering how you balance the two. And I know you had a father who was a rabbi who was very spiritual. So can you comment on that? How you maintain that balance between the academic scholarly way of looking at these texts and the spiritual way? Sure. No, no the, the, the power of it is, is the spiritual power. So you know, whatever the academic approach can give us, you know, in the end, it really has to surrender to the power of the text. And, and, it, and it can get in the way. It can, you know, a lot of, very often the academic approach can, can ruin, can, can block the power. So my, my approach is really to, to you know, to, to navigate between those two, the academic and the spiritual, to be humble enough to learn from both of them. To say, let, you know, let's take an example that, you know, this often always comes up. When was the Zohar written, right? Hey. Is, is the Zohar 13th century? Or does it go back to Rabbi Shimon in the 2nd century? And then you have people say, oh, it doesn't really matter when it's written. Just the power of the text. But that, to me, is the wrong answer. It hmm. matters very much when it was written. But what matters more is the power of the text. And one can enrich the other. If you know... Why, why, the, why the Zohar is, is alluding to the Crusades 
writer, or that, it, that here it's borrowing something from Rashi. You see what goes into the Zohar and what it's contending with. What were Jews facing in Spain in the 13th century? How is the Zohar responding to Christianity, to the Virgin Mary, to Christology, to the Trinity? If you don't know the context, then you, you, you don't know what the Zohar is talking about. If you don't know that the Zohar was written in 13th century Spain, you miss a lot of the Zohar. But right. if you know only that, if you know only that, then you miss what's even more important, the spiritual power of the Zohar. So one, one can often be, can conflict with the other, but I think one enriches the other. And if you just have one without the other, then it's, it's a diluted and a diluted message. Thank you for that. That really helps to put some of this in context. I think now we should jump in to study some of these texts from the text sheet. Let's start with the first text on the text sheet. Again, people can access this text sheet via the link that's in the description of this week's podcast, or they can listen to last week's podcast audio files. This first text is from Genesis. It's when God says, let there be light. Vayomer Elohim or or. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Professor Matt, would you like to comment on this? It's remarkable. The first thing that God creates is light, right? If we can even call it a thing. So it's this, this form of energy is the first thing to emerge and then it's to emerge from where, right? Genesis doesn't say where the light comes from. And right. now the Midrash asks, where did the light come from? But we, we don't have to rush to that. The first, that those two verses themselves are remarkable. And people, you know, we know, in a sense, we know them so well, we don't look at them. Yeah. You know, so what's going on with, with the darkness? God says, let there be light. So, but what is the darkness? The darkness is already there. Is the darkness just a lack of light or is something more elemental, more threatening? Darkness is one thing, but what's also there is what? Water. The, right. the verse we don't have here, right? The next verse, uh, God's spirit is hovering over the Mayim. So how did the water get there? Darkness, you could say, darkness is nothing, just a lack of light. Water, that's more complicated than light. How did the water get there? So Genesis doesn't care. Genesis isn't saying God created everything out of nothing. Genesis is saying there's chaos and God imposed order on chaos. The first thing you need is light. Turn on the light. Then you see, ah, there's water there. Genesis doesn't ask where did the water come from? Other people wonder that. And that, that's a, a problem later. Later, Jews and Christians and Muslims all insist that God created the world out of nothing. But that's, that's hey. long after Genesis. What I'm thinking about now is is the Zoharic interpretation of Bereshit bara Elohim. Yes. Just start with the Pshat, right? So the Pshat, we know it so well, you don't even, you know, you felt no need to say it. But in the beginning, God created. But what's the problem? The Hebrew actually says, in the beginning, created God. Bereshit bara Elohim. Now in Hebrew, that obviously means, in the beginning, Elohim created. The Hebrew puts the subject after the verb which right. you do sometimes in English too, right? Thus spoke the king. So in the beginning, God created, but it actually says in the beginning created God. So the Zohar says, no, it means in the beginning, it created God. It turns God into the object of the sentence instead of the subject. Bereshit no longer means in the beginning, but with beginning, namely with wisdom, which is the beginning. With wisdom, 
And what where's the subject? In the beginning, it created God. Well, who's it? It's good not to name it because the it is the unnameable. And sof, that's the hidden subject. And luckily in Hebrew, you can have a, a verb itself includes the subject. So we could go for, on for hours about different interpretations, mystical interpretations of this section from Genesis. But let's move forward to the next text from the Midrash. So this second text is from Midrash Tehillim. It is a bit of a perhaps disagreement between two rabbis about whether a teaching regarding God and light should be said in a whisper or not. Right. I'll just you know read the question and answer. So one yeah. rabbi asks the other, how did God create the light? It says, God wrapped himself in a white talit and the world shone from his light. But he whispers that. The other rabbi says, well, why'd you whisper it? It says that right in the Bible, wrapped in light like a cloak. The rabbi says, look, I received it in a whisper. I told it to you in a whisper. He doesn't really answer his question, or he answers it only by saying, I think it kind of means it almost like if you get it, you got it. You know, I, I, I was told just the teaching, and I'm giving you it, you know, go meditate on it. This is kind of, you know, it's such a typical spiritual technique, such a, a good teaching technique among all mystics, not to spell it out. Right, right. Just to, the idea of hamevin yavin, right? The person exactly, it's really exactly like the hamevin yavin. Another thing about the whisper is interesting. Remember that game Telephone? Yes. Right? You, you just whisper something to a friend. By the time it gets around the other end of the circle, what happens? You know, it's a different message. It's, it's, it's totally different. Yeah. And that could often happen with, with mystical teachings too. How they change and from something misheard or, you know, it, it doesn't always come across exactly as it was originally taught. But I think, I think here, here the, I, think, I, think I, I think I know why it was whispered. I think, I mean, I think I know what makes it a, a, a whisperable secret, right? What makes what it, it mystical? I think what makes it mystical is this. What's the difference between the verse in Psalms and what Rabbi, you know, Shmuel said? The verse in Psalms says, wrapped in light like a garment. Mm-hmm. It is like a cloak, like a cloak, a garment. Wrapped in light like a garment. So it says God's wrapped in light. But what did the rabbi say? God wrapped himself in a talit. Not he wrapped himself in light. Mm. He wrapped himself in a talit. Talit here doesn't really mean a prayer shawl. It just means a garment. He wrapped himself in a white cloak and the world shone from his light. So it's not that God's wrapped in light. God's wrapped in a filter and the divine light shines through the filter. That creates the world. This is the beginning of emanation right in the Midrash. Mm. That's what I think. Now, it's interesting because this Midrash puts it this way. If you look at some of the variants, it doesn't say so clearly that it's God's light. It seems it could be just the light. But I think this version conveys the the mystical element of it. This makes me think of of when Moshe comes down from the mountain uh, and he's got light coming out of his face. And he has to put put a cloth in front of his exactly. face. Sort of exactly. Sort of he does, he's not putting on light. light. He's not putting on light. He's putting on the filter so that people can handle the light. And that's what's happening here. So let's move through the texts 
How would you like to proceed? Why don't I say something brief about each one? Uh, just on page, that would be great. Really, really brief. So page two, number three, Rabbi Yehuda, son of Simon. This, uh, I'll just read part of it. With the light created by God on the first day, a person could gaze and see from one end of the world to the other. When God foresaw the corruption of the generation of Enosh, the generation of the flood, he immediately hid it away from them. As is written, the light of the wicked is withheld. Where did he hide it? In the Garden of Eden. So this is the idea of the hidden light. This is important teaching to do because that's uh, our That's our the topic, yeah. That's... So this, this is really the, the basic teaching on the hidden light before the Kabbalists do what they will do to it. So this light, the original light, it would have given you cosmic vision. Right? You could see the entire universe. What's the problem? God realized some people would misuse that light. So it's hidden because the wicked would misuse it. So where is it hidden? It's hidden in Gan Eden, hidden in the Garden of Eden. So it seems from this, the light is not available until after death. That's really the, the bottom line here in this Midrash. The light is not available now in this world, in this lifetime, because if it were available, it would be misused. But let's immediately look at number four. So what's interesting about number four, it also talk, uses this phrase from one end of the world to the other. But here it's not that a person would see from one end of the world to the other. It says Adam extended from one end of the world to the other. Adam filled the whole universe. And he quotes a verse to prove this. I actually don't want to get into this because it would take too long. But what comes in the next four italicized lines is a proof text to prove that Adam filled the universe. You can do this with a complicated type of midrash, but you can figure that out on your own. We're going we're to skip the italics, but the very last line I want to read, once Adam sinned, God placed his hand on him and made him smaller. Okay, so Adam filled the whole universe, but then he was scrunched down to normal, puny human size. So what's interesting there is that the first paragraph says, you could see from one end of the world to the other, right? The first paragraph says you could see from one end of the world to the other. Right. The second paragraph says Adam actually filled one end of the world to the other. And also that, that this is really a matter of, uh, of awareness. Right. He saw from one end of the world to the other. He was one end of the world to the other. So he, it, it's describing a cosmic consciousness, I think. If you, if you, put, the, if you put the two together... You put the two together, it 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 could allude to to cosmic consciousness. And then the there's a kind of symptom here, right? Uh, and, again, again, and the last one is symptom. A human symptom, right? God scrunches, God scrunches Adam down to size. It is symptom. Perhaps it's alluding to a spiritual practice here to get in touch with this this cosmic consciousness. Yeah, certainly, I th- I think you know as we move. Through the teachings from from Torah through Chazal to to Kabbalah, that it becomes a, a spiritual practice. You, you you're trying to get in touch again with that hidden light, so the the spark within or the light within, and Adam's original awareness, and that the the expulsion from the garden is losing that sense of of connection, and finding one's way back to the garden. Is, is the spiritual path. Beautiful. All right, do you want to say something about number five? Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, so, so, so five is, is uh, in, the, in the Zohar already. And here, uh, come and see. Adam's image and beauty was like the radiance of the highest heaven, like the light hidden away. Okay, so it's linking Adam himself to the hidden light. His original nature was the hidden light. And number six, this is the Zohar. This is very interesting. This is the Zohar. It's a beautiful example of, of the Zohar wrestling with the rabbis. This is the Zohar wrestling, wrestling with the rabbis. What did the rabbis say? The light was originally available, but then it was hidden, right? And it's not available any longer until paradise, until you get to Gan Eden. So look what happens here. Number six, God said, let there be light, and there was light. Rabbi Yossi said that light was hidden away, and it's reserved for the righteous in the world to come. Okay, here it's the world to come rather than Gan Eden, right? As has been established, for it is written, light is sown for the righteous. So it's hidden for the righteous. That light never functioned in the world except for the first day. Afterwards, it was hidden away and performed no more. So that's basically a paraphrase of the Midrash, right? Now Rabbi Yehuda comes, and look what he says. Rabbi Yehuda said, if it were completely hidden, the world would not exist for even one moment. Rather, it was hidden and sown like a seed that generates offspring and fruit, and by which the world is sustained. There's not a day without something emerging from it into the world and sustaining all. And by this, the Blessed Holy One feeds the world. And everywhere the Torah is studied at night, one ray issues from that hidden light and is drawn upon those absorbed in her. As is written, by day Yudhevave ordains his love, etc. Since the first day, it has not been revealed, but it certainly does perform in the world, renewing every day the act of creation. So wow. basically, what is he saying? If, if it were hidden, the world would fall apart. It can't be totally hidden. At the end, he says, okay, it's not fully revealed, but it can't be totally hidden. Rather, one ray comes out every day to reanimate the world. So this is continual creation. But it's beautiful to see that it's a give and take. Rabbi Yossi says, the rabbinic view, Rabbi Yehuda says, no, impossible. Beautiful. What about number seven and number eight? So we're going to look at these two remarkable things, number seven, number eight, by yeah. this relatively unknown Kabbalist, Shimon Lavi Ketempaz. So this is a, a Kabbalist lived around the same time as Isaac Luria. In fact, he was on his way to the land of Israel. He would have met up with Luria, and his ideas are very close to Tzimtzum also, as we'll see in a moment. Interesting. But he never got to the land of Israel. He was exiled from, from Spain. He or his family in 1492, and then he went to North Africa, you know, went across the Straits of Gibraltar to North Africa and started going to the land of Israel, but he stopped in, in Tripoli, and, uh, you know, in, 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 I guess it's uh, Tunisia, is it, I think, and, and that, that's where he, a little island off Tunisia called Jerba, and he uh -huh. became the rabbi of Jerba. The local Jewish community convinced him to stay rather than going on to the land of Israel where he probably would have met Luria. He stayed for the rest of his life in this Jewish community off the island of North Africa. And there he was the rabbi, but there he also wrote this commentary in the Zohar, one of the finest commentaries ever written on the Zohar before Luria. So it's not yet Luriana Kabbalah, it's just closer to the pshat of the Zohar. Precious commentary. What is it called? His commentary is called Ketem Paz, which a phrase from Shir Shirim, finest gold 
Ketem actually means gold and Paz means gold. It's gold of gold, finest gold. Why did he call it that? Paz stands for Perush Zohar. Love it. <laughs> Ketem Paz. So, is, so he's a 16th century Kabbalist, and this is what he says. Number seven. My teacher taught me that Adam resembled the primordial light. Okay, that we already saw in the Zohar, but he says it very clearly. Adam resembled the primordial light that was hidden away. Afterward, a thread-thin ray appeared, giving soul to the people on earth and spirit to those who walk thereon. For if a little of the light had not reappeared, the world cannot endure, as we saw. I cannot expand on this, for so have I been commanded. That's precious itself, right? Like I heard this. I'm not. It's again. It's kind of like I heard it in a whisper. Right I back to the whisper. It's don't talk about yeah. it. It's, it's but, but, but but he writes it right. He writes it down, but he says, "Don't expect me to say anything more." Wait, you know? what, what is it that 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 he says? Uh, it says in the Zohar, uh, "Woe if I reveal it. Woe if I yeah. don't reveal it." Exactly. Yeah, that that's the Zohar's way of saying that. So okay, but what does he say? So obviously he's highlighting this is something important. But notice the real radical nature is, is actually hidden in the verse. So what does it mean? Adam resembled the light. Okay, maybe he did, but he lost it. So what do we have left? All we have is a thread thin ray. What's that ray? Isaiah says it. He doesn't say it. Isaiah says it. Soul. So wow. the hidden ray is the soul. That's what we have of the of the light, and that's how we can get back to the light. You trace the soul back to the light, you can become the light. Says, I cannot expand on this. So this is a mystical secret to meditate. This is a secret of meditation. He's saying, go take this and meditate on it. That's what it means. I cannot expand on this for so have I been commanded. I've been told, don't say anything. If, if you get it, you got it. Actually, if you get it, you won't get it. You know, just sit with it for a year for whatever. Okay, now let's go to number eight, because this is remarkable. Same teacher, same book. If you look down at the footnote, it's three pages later. Yeah. Same book, commentating, commenting on a passage in the Zohar. With the, this is so beautiful, I'll read it in the Hebrew. You can follow in the English. With the appearance, I'm going to read the Hebrew. With the appearance of the light, the universe expanded. Uvigenizato, using the root ganaz, ganuz, uvigenizato, with its concealment, nivru kolhanim tsaim, leminehem. All individual existence came into being. Zehu sod ma'aseb bereshit. This is the secret of the act of creation. Vahamevin yavin. One who understands will understand. If you get it, you got it. So it's interesting. This is just four lines, right? Okay, the last yeah. line says, if you get it, you got it. The third line says, this is the secret. So we only have two lines. Two lines, the whole thing. With the appearance of the light, the universe expanded. That sounds like the Big Bang. Maybe in the 16th century, that was a secret. That's pretty obvious now. But what the second line is more intriguing. With its concealment, all individual existence came into being. It's strange. You would expect to say with the appearance of the light, existence comes into being. Right. But this takes us back to the filter, right? Takes us back to the, the most important thing. It's the concealing that allows for existence, really, because without the concealing, as you said, it would be too much to bear. We, we, we wouldn't exist at all as separate. So what, what gives us separate existence? The filtering, the packaging, the limitation, the the individuality we each have is a filter of the light. Underneath, it's all one light. 
but each of us has a little spark and it's housed, it's expressed in a different way. And it's the concealment as much as the revealing that, that allows that. And Moses, Moses de Leon says a remarkable thing in one of his writings that, that the soul is missing something until it's embodied, right? By being embodied, it can, it can express itself and experience new, new things which is even greater than staying up there in heaven. Anyway, so what, let, why don't we conclude with number nine? We have a, yes, a, let's do it. This is from Moses Cordovero, a 16th century living in Svat. And it's the theme we've, we've just been discussing now. When powerful light is concealed and clothed in a garment, it is revealed. Though concealed, the light is actually revealed. For were it not concealed, it could not be revealed. Hey, this sounds like gobbledygook, but this is what we've been talking about. And, you know, this is, you could say, what gives mysticism a bad name. But he's, he's going to explain this paradox. This is like wishing to gaze at the dazzling sun. Its dazzle conceals it, for a person cannot look at its overwhelming brilliance. Yet when he conceals it, looking at it through screens or filters, he can manage to see with his eyes and not be harmed. So it is with emanation, for by concealing and clothing itself, it reveals itself. It's gorgeous. It's, it's beautiful. To you and me, it may be clear, but I'm sure people are still somewhat yeah. puzzled. <laughs> so, you know, what does this mean? If it's concealed, it's revealed. If it's not concealed, it wouldn't be revealed. So, right, the sun is too much to gaze at. You can only look at the sun, right, even in, a, in an eclipse. You have to have some filter, some protection. And if you have a filter, then you can enjoy the warmth, even the light of the sun without being harmed. But what does he mean at the end? So it is with emanation. For by concealing and clothing itself, it reveals itself. I think he's really talking about the relationship between God and the world. What is the world? Or as we were saying, what is individual being? What is ego? What is the self? What is any separate thing? What is any apparently separate thing? Right. It's divine light being concealed, expressing itself in some limited, specific way. And that's the process of creation. Right. Back to Midrash Tehillim. The divine light is wrapped in a talit, and that way it can, it, the filter, it can be filtered and, and bearable filtered it's filtered so so what's coming to my head as a question is what about the darkness again you know and and so here the the darkness has some value right because yeah. without the darkness it would be it would just be destructive in a way the light itself could be destructive is the darkness the darkness. filter i mean a, a bit of darkness is filtered then if there's too much darkness then the light's blocked out so the the balance you know kabbalah really really is about balancing the extremes and either extreme would be destructive too much chesed the world could drown in that kind of love and too much judgment or harshness gives birth to evil according so to kabbalah so you need you need shadows shadows and light um in order to see the world right and i mean that's right it's beautiful how this all fits together and i feel like we what it's saying is that at our essence at our at at our Adam cosmic consciousness best, we are that pure light. We are that Orhaganus, right? That is our consciousness. Is the Orhaganus, right? 
and it's filtered Definitely. all these filters, all of our Mishigas, all of our, uh, here's another one, Espaclaria uh Deena Meira, right? It's the it's the 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 dark mirror, right? It's all of our dark right. mirrors mm-hmm. that we're filtered mm-hmm. through, yeah. right? And we see ourselves and our ego, but ultimately we realize that that's what we are. Very much I think that that is the Orha Ganus. And the, the the texts we've seen, they hint at it. But yep. really if you if you look at, at how it develops and eventually with with the Zohar and Ketan Paz and Cordovero, that's that's the place you end up. Well, thank you so much, Professor Daniel Matt, for joining us today. Uh, it was a wonderful, enlightening discussion. We will be continuing our exploration of the Orhaga news and light as we move through the month of Kislev. Thanks for listening today. Until next time, this has been Rabbi Ben Newman with the Neshama Project podcast. Take care.